This week on A Lively Experiment, the long-awaited school assessment scores are out this week. So how did Rhode Island students do? And the Tidewater Landing Project is back on track with the help of a mystery millionaire. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us for a Reporters Roundtable, Raymond Bakari, Program Manager for Anchor TV at Rhode Island College, Ian Donis, Political Reporter for The Public's Radio, and Providence Journal State House Reporter, Patrick Anderson. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. Let the parsing begin. Wednesday's release of the Rhode Island Comprehensive Assessment System test results, we all know it as RICAS, drew varied reaction. The governor and education commissioner celebrated the results, saying the numbers are up over last year, but critics note they are still below pre-pandemic levels and we are still behind our neighbor to the north, Massachusetts. Ian, I think that what struck me the most is, you know, it's all relative pre-pandemic only a third of the kids in Rhode Island are at proficiency for math and English. And that, that's a tough thing to swallow. Yeah, and even in some of the more affluent communities where the school's uh, performance is better, you have a third of kids who are below standard. Let's face it, the effort to improve public education in Rhode Island has been an abject failure. Of course, the pandemic was a massive curveball. That's understandable. It's understandable that that caused some slippage and backtracking. But we've been talking about this in the state for a quarter century, and there's been very meager, if any, progress. We only have to look to Massachusetts, where the state pursued a new effort in the 90s, different funding thing, approach to make things more equitable, and they really moved up forward and had some significant gains. And we've had a variety of changes over that time, and we haven't you know, really kept a consistent standard approach. Yeah, just the fact that only a third are proficient in ELA, English language arts, and barely 30% in math is just abysmal. Even Senators uh, Cano and Gallo acknowledge how low these scores are in a statement after those scores came out. And like Ian said, maybe we have to look to Massachusetts to see what they're doing. Rhode Island scores are still lagging behind Massachusetts. I believe the MCAS scores, uh, MCAS tests that they do, uh, whether maybe we have to do something like the constitutional right for the adequate education or look, look at changes when it comes to funding, school choice, something's got to be done. It has a kind of a Groundhog Day effect at this point because not a lot has changed. Um, no, nothing has really improved that much, um, but there's there's kind of this stasis. Um, and I think there's a lot less energy around exactly what the plan should be. Um, there are a lot of ideas, but there isn't the kind of momentum, I think, behind really any at this point. I mean, you know, one part of this is is just the the difficulty of the test um, and the fact that they that proficient is not easy to attain, even in Massachusetts, which does much better. If you actually just go on proficiency, the the number of people that are, are proficient is is low, and it, it gives a very negative uh, perception around the results whenever they're reported. It makes almost everything feel like a failure, even in the states that are quote unquote uh, succeeding. So that, I mean, that's more around kind of the, the optics of it. As for what Rhode Island does to improve, I, I think it's unclear. There's been a lot of focus along uh, around second language learners, but they actually did maybe a little better in these 
results. Um, there's been more money pumped in this year, and there, there probably will be more. But it, it's not clear exactly what is moving, what specific changes are moving things right now. Those of us who have been around long enough, though, remember, Massachusetts got a plan. You asked, what would we do? And they stuck to it. And Rhode Island, the legislature got involved. There was the standardized testing and not. So you got to have a plan, but you have to have the fortitude to be able to stick to it. Absolutely right. And people in Rhode Island have made this observation for a number of years now, just what you said, Jim, that, you know, we have to have a consistent plan and stay with it. And, and yet here we are. And just looking at the test scores, just one of the many issues going on when it comes to education or state. You have issues like chronic absenteeism, teacher shortages. I look at it like, thankfully, I got my, and, and then COVID, I thankfully got my K through 12 education mostly done before COVID. But I could just only imagine COVID made things a lot worse. But you also wonder, Patrick, the uh, uh, Angelica Infante Green was brought in here. And then we had the, uh, you know, to look at the entire state. And then we had, um, the Hopkins report in Providence. So, so much of the energy has been sucked into that. And it's interesting, she's had a much lower profile. And I don't know why that is. You know, of course, during COVID, we saw her a lot, but her focus is the state. And she's been, I wonder if the eye has been off the ball because Providence has taken up so much of her time. Could be. Um, I mean, if you remember back, I think she was someone who people were speculating was going to leave relatively early. For New York. In, yeah, in that, tran that kind of transition from Raimondo uh, to McKee. And she's been actually one of the ones who stayed longer. I, I think Prov the Providence takeover has been a mess, and it, it doesn't, from the outside, appear to have a direction. I, I, no one really knows where it's going. No one likes it. No one kind of wants it, even the people doing it. And it's just kind of, it's moving on its own kind of momentum and, and just sort of plodding along. And I, I'm not certain what the end game is. And Providence Mayor Smiley has indicated, maybe, you know, he wants to bring it back, but certainly not right away. So we're kind of in a limbo. Where is Providence going to be, right? That's right. Yeah. And, you know, obviously the losers in all this are, are the kids in this has been going on for so long that, you know, thousands of kids have gotten a substandard education over time. All right. There was a lot of talk last spring uh, from mainly from retirees who uh, had their cost of living adjustments frozen back during the Raimondo it, uh, when uh, Gina Raimondo was state treasurer and they had the whole pension reform. There was discussion about, look, it's been a long time now. We're having a hard time with inflation. Um, the the news peg this week, Patrick, and you had a story on it, is that Senate, um, state treasurer James Diosa is now putting together a study group. What struck me, too, is, you know, you always have the pension abuses of the Providence Fire guy who's making, you know, 200 and something thousand dollars. A lot of these people are thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, and they're not getting any cost of living. So, what is kept? Is it the legislature that's driving this? Is it the treasurer? Is it both? I would I would say more the legislature. There was something last year, and I, th I think late it, in the session. Well, right? yeah, but it, and it, but I think it was triggered by inflation. I think it was triggered by the economy. But something in the perception around this issue just clicked and flipped and flipped towards the retirees um, and. You know, there's been a, a strong feeling you know, that they got a raw deal for years, um, but it seemed particularly unfair with costs rising the way they were. I mean, we, we spent a, you know, a year last, the previous summer, talking about gas prices, and just the politics of that issue just turned last year, and nothing really happened on it. But I think it's one of those, there's usually, there's the year where you set the stage for something happening, and then, the, then it's often the next year that something happens. So I think there is a lot of momentum to do something 
for the retirees uh, on COLAs. And, and, but the election uh, of Diosa, I think, also helps. He, he's uh, very union aligned, so I think that's also going to help. I don't think that the retirees should expect to get their 3% compounded COLAs back. I don't think we're going back to 2010, but there's probably going to be something. I would agree with Patrick, and there are a couple of lawmakers like House Oversight Chairwoman Pat Serpa of West Warwick who've been very outspoken in expressing regret about their 2011 vote in support of the pension overhaul. The timing is interesting given how Gina Raimondo, who was general treasurer back in 2011, was back at the State House this week for as part of a profile being made by 60 Minutes. Apparently, she gave uh, the cold shoulder to a couple of our <laughs> local reporter friends. Uh, including Patrick, who wanted to uh, say hello. But, but, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, Raimondo uh, made her name in large part through this pension overhaul. She became a darling of the Wall Street Journal editorial page, and that blew up her reputation nationally. That doesn't mean that the, the effort was totally misplaced. I mean, yes, the pension system was very underfunded, but at the same time, there was no similar concern expressed about the onerous post-employment, uh, post-retiree employment benefits for health care, which are very uh, staggering in Rhode Island. It's we the OPEB that is sinking right. a lot of people, yeah. like Warwick is a billion dollar right. and obligation. We, and we don't hear any comparable concern about that, but I agree with Patrick. I, I think it appears likely that, you know, these retirees will, will get a, a little something. And kind of like education, something d definitely needs to be done because right now it's anticipated by 2031 is when that pension fund will hit the 80% mark to you know actually get the colas back and the automatic uh, trigger. Yeah, right. and then there was a point made in that in, in the article that the Providence Journal had out about this is how many retirees are going to be around by those retirees are going to be around by 2031. And I also found another interesting thing that was pointed out in um, I think it was Kathy's article where a retiree had asked why no one was appointed by Treasurer Diosa to represent the retirees on that um, advisory group. Yeah, the other. The thing that struck me is, and you hear this a lot, is that, and I don't know what the percentage is, that they're not getting Social Security. So if you think about it's, that, if this is their only pension, that's a big deal. Well, yeah, it's in some, it's in certain some. certain communities, and I don't remember the history of why that happened, and it, it seemed like it was a bad a bad decision on all to, you know, to do it that way. But yeah, so then, then there's like a there's a subgroup of, of people who are in a particularly difficult situation, and you know they make a very sympathetic case to, to, to do something, um, but they also show kind of the mess that, that was created with this whole issue and has been created over over decades. All right, one other footnote on this issue. I mean, Matt Brown tried running on this issue, the anger of the retirees in 2018 for governor. Didn't yeah, how'd that go? Not so well. <laughs> and, and Spencer Dickinson tried doing the same thing in the CD1 Democratic primary. He got like 1% of the vote, so it hasn't really resonated outside the legislature as a galvanizing political issue. All right, so let's put the numbers aside. Let's get to the real stuff. Let's talk about Gina Ramondo blowing you off at the state house. So set the scene. 60 Minutes is coming in. Leslie Stahl, who I just saw last week, like in a bunker with Israeli families, decides to come to the other war zone of Rhode Island. Um, tell me, you guys got wind that she was doing an interview, right? Yeah. Well, sometimes you can you can tell at the state house when something is Little a foot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The parking lot is uh, a Twitter, and uh, um, and we can tell something was going on. That was the rumor that it it was uh, Secretary Ramondo was here. And it, it, people are all speculating of, of what this means, and with, with the most frequent being, 
oh, she's going to be the VP, uh, the, the vice presidential pick. Uh, Biden is going to is going to ditch uh, Kamala Harris and and choose Raimondo, uh, which is is unlikely to happen. But that and the, the speculation was that this was to burnish Raimondo to get uh, her in everybody's mind. Um, I don't know what the motivation was. Uh, Gina, going back to her governor days, has always had this ability to cultivate the certain elements of the national mainstream media and get these um, particularly fawning pieces. But I don't know that that's what the, She didn't want to make eye contact but she, with you and Kathy well, She Gray. knows that it's different with the local press. <laughs> she's had a you different know, the experience. The profit's not appreciated in her own country. <laughs> I mean, getting that more national attention for the uh, commerce, uh, Secretary of Commerce, it makes you wonder, you know, what things will look like in 2028. Does she end up running? I mean, what if 2026 a Senate seat opens in Rhode Island? Uh, that's something that was coming to mind when seeing that she's getting more of this national attention. And I'm sorry to hear that that, that happened. She's Patrick. had no problem. <laughs> gaining national attention, has she? Yeah, I think uh, our friend Ted Nisi, I think, coined the phrase Raimundo mania back when <laughs> she was still general treasurer. But she's come a long way from even her first term as governor when she was sometimes in a defensive crouch in handling pesky reporters like us. Like you, Hip. <laughs> and, that's right. right? And, yeah. But, I mean, she has uh, evolved as a swan in, as far as her ease in uh, responding to media inquiries. And she has gotten respect across the aisle in Washington, Repu Republicans like her. It was funny because when she was in Rhode Island, you know, liberals thought she was too conservative. Conservatives thought she was too liberal. But she's basically a pro-business. So she's doing her job. <laughs> she's a, she's a pro-business Democrat. And I think she is a, a rising star in national democratic politics, obviously. I mean, really, what was she worried? She couldn't even just say hello. Did you make eye contact? I, I, hey, I remember me? It, we used to have a relationship Well, here. yeah. Well, I don't want to <laughs> There's that. But then there's, I mean, I think that they wanted to keep... I, they're probably under some orders by 60 minutes to keep everything under wraps and not uh, not spoil the big reveal of uh, of Gina being on TV. I don't know if that's what it was, or it was something I wrote back in uh, you know, 2015. <laughs> hey, don't was, go uh, to that guy. And if I showed up, he'd be like, "Oh, we had bad interactions with uh, the veterans." Okay. Um, well, we'll look forward to seeing that piece come out. Um, CD1, uh, probably the quietest race you will ever hear. Um, and it's interesting that we have this panel because you guys were all doing the congressional debates last year at Rick. Uh, Raymond, you had asked uh, early on for Gabe Amo and Gary Leonard, and even you got blown off. Yep. Um, just to put it simply, Gabe Amo's campaign declined. Gary Leonard's campaign accepted. We got the, the quote where it said uh, uh, Gabe is going to do two debates, one on WJAR and then one on WPRI. They were nervous about those Raymond Bakari penetrating <laughs> questions. They didn't want to have to face you. I mean, we want, and we really did try. I reached out, I think, two days after the primary results, too, and uh, tried to get it. We were going to do it in person at our TV studio, Rick, but luckily we're going to have the Senate District 1 race, so there will at least be one debate that we'll be able to do. What do you make of this? That he just, he, I mean, it's funny, it's, it's flipped because Gary Leonard we couldn't get a hold of during the primary. Now he's everywhere and Gabe Amo's gone the other right. way. Right. It was a little surprising to me because Amo is a first time candidate. He's got an overwhelming advantage as a Democrat running in predominantly Democratic CD1. And he, you know, he did welcome opportunities to take part in forums and debates in the primary. Uh, we invited him and Leonard to be part of a forum that the Public's Radio was going to do with the Providence Journal. Amo declined. Leonard said he would do that. Instead, I'm having them both come in for, for separate interviews in the next two weeks. But I think voters lose something when they don't get to see candidates go head to head. 
Yeah, definitely. That's that's a that's a big thing about this whole situation. It's something that gets me disappointed because when you look at the governor's race, which I mean, analysts also argued was a safe Democrat race, had four debates: two TV, the one that uh, Patrick and Ian and I did, and then one radio. So why not at least do? Three to four. It, it, the voters have the right to know it's a special election. Turnout's going to be low. These are for, both first-time candidates. It's, it's just not fair to the voters. I hope you're not taking this personally. Gina blows it <laughs> off. Gabe almost says, I don't want Patrick on my debates. Or like, you might have to get your counseling or something. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I, I, unfortunately, I'm I'm not as surprised by this. And it's not a personal thing, but but I, I, I think from the beginning, it was likely that Gabe was not going to be eager to do many debates given his position. Um, I mean, I think there was a lot of talk from sort of Washington operatives of, oh, he's doing two? Uh, I mean, <laughs> you mean that's is, a lot? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. a lot. Um, there just, just isn't a huge advantage to Gabe, given where everyone thinks he is and, and how they think that this is going to unfold, in giving Leonard a huge amount of airtime, or really any airtime. I mean, Leonard's so only TV ad. By, he's going to win by 30 points instead of 40 points? I mean, right. really, what's the difference, right? Right, but they're just, yeah. So I mean, he's but he's not motivated. He doesn't feel any pressure, um, you know, from 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 us or anyone else to do four or five debates. There just isn't much pressure on him, given where things are, and so he's going to do as you know, kind of as few as he thinks he can get away with. And one last point, kind of piggybacking off of, off of that, just. There's a culture now where candidates are skipping debates or doing debates at the last second right after early voting started or doing as little as possible. And that's that's got to stop because it's it's not fair. Again, not fair to the voters and you know not fair to us who are trying to do our job and letting the voters know where these candidates stand. Raymond's exactly right. This seems part of a larger trend in which candidates and politicians are more concerned about controlling their message and limiting their uh, unscripted moments in facing questions from reporters. The one thing I'd add, though, and one different dynamic now is early voting, and and that's the one thing about it's it's two debates, but they're happening toward right towards the end, and of the people who do vote, many will have already voted right. early uh, through the mail before the debates actually. Have. So that's a new dynamic that actually exacerbates the concerns and the problems that Ian and Ray are talking about, and it ruins the chances of having a good sound by like a Reagan's youth and inexperience moment. Oh, that that's would change the thing the whole they don't election. want. That's, yeah. yeah, they don't want that. Well, let's say let's get a couple of updates. Actually, uh, Raymond, while we have you here, we've talked a lot about the Hope Scholarship. This followed the promise at uh, CCRI taxpayer funded tuition. There's some um, caveats for it. Uh, this is a big deal at Rick, and you guys, the, the governor and uh, president, and a lot of politicians were out there celebrating it last week. Absolutely, this probably might be the last debate I do on the. I mean, last um, uh, update on the I do on the Hope Scholarship for a while since I've been covering it since the bill was written. But yeah, so the numbers were 321 students were eligible so far. 207 actually used utilized it be, uh, because the other 114 had enough financial aid and grants to cover their tuition bill. And as you mentioned, we had a ceremonial signing at the Quad at Rhode Island College's campus. The Quad was packed with members of the Rick community. To it was this, the most packed I'd ever seen the Quad in my whole four years at Rick. Uh, McKee did the ceremonial signing. You had speakers like uh, um, Speaker Shikarchi, uh, Rhett McNamara, who wrote the House version, uh, Ryan Pearson, Senate Majority Leader, who wrote the Senate version. Then they had a student who talked about how it impacted them. But it seems that there are fewer people than they had projected. So it's not going to cost right. taxpayers and, as and, much money. And kind of exactly, I don't have the exact figures on how much it, it, that pilot program funding has been utilized. 
so far. I'm still trying to get that. But what I will say is that the recruiting for Fall 23 was already mostly done when this bill was signed in June. So the next recruiting for the next freshman class is really going to be the real test. And uh, it's also going to be need there's going to need to be an increase in PR about this and we're seeing that already but in order to really get the desired figures they're gonna to have to double down. Ian you have some news this week on the labor front. Yeah George Nee is a very familiar figure in Rhode Island who's been a stalwart of the local labor movement for 40 years one-time bodyguard to Cesar Chavez longtime president of the Rhode Island AFL-CIO as of January 1st he's going to go to a part-time role and begin a transition in which he will be succeeded by Patrick Crowley, uh, who will for now maintain the role of secretary treasurer in the AFL-CIO, but who's been part of the NEA Teachers Union. He's going over to the AFL-CIO starting in January and taking on more responsibility. I've been in this market 40 years. I don't remember his predecessor. George Nee seems to be synonymous with AFL-CIO. So it's, it's, a, it's a seismic shift probably over the next five years, right? Yeah, George is an influential person, a very familiar face at the State House. Uh, known and uh, widely known in Rhode Island and in the political sphere. Yeah. And, and Patrick Crowley's profile at the State House has been, and, and in other areas of state government, has been rising in the last especially year or so. And one final thing, a plug. You are doing a debate for the uh, Senate District 1C. Tell us about that. Absolutely. So my good friend Ryan Lukowicz and I, we did, we've done a few debates in the primary season. We did one for uh, CD1 and one for Senate 1. So now we're doing a general election debate. Both the candidates have agreed to a one-hour debate Monday. We're going to be taping it in the morning, and then it'll air around like 5 p.m. But in the, person. Yep, in person at our TV studio at Rick, and then it'll air later that day at around 5 p.m. on the Anchor TV YouTube channel. Jake Brasilian and, and Nyoka Powell. Nyoka Powell. That should be, I think that should be a live debate. Oh, absolutely. And it's probably going to be one of the only, I guess, debates or forums. So this is definitely going to be one to watch if you're in Senate District 1 or even just observing the political scene and want to know where these candidates stand. Okay, let's go to uh, outrages and or kudos and then we'll get back to a few other things. Patrick, let's begin with you this week. Uh, I mean, people are probably sick of hearing journalists complain about the government uh, denying public records requests. But um, I'll do another one. Um, there, there, I, I've put in a request for information about pickleball. Um, there, there's an obscure state board uh, that has, uh, I believe, approved, though I don't exactly know, um, a loan guarantee for, for some kind of pickleball facility in um, somewhere. <laughs> and the, it sounds like you need to fill in some of the gaps. Exactly. And now you're getting to what my, my point is. The, um, the state government will not provide any documents or any explanation for where this is going, why they are guaranteeing, if not issuing, a $5 million bond for a pickleball um, facility, whatever this might be. Um, and the um, well-paid, I think, uh, spokesperson for the Commerce Corporation has said that it, it would be illegal of the state not to to release any document, any piece of paper, it's proprietary information, that, that, or that would that did not that was not full that was not take advantage of every single possible exemption that they could under the APRA law, which is not true and is not what the law says. But that is how the state government, that is how lawyers and the McKee administration are treating APRA. That it is that they have to withhold. Certain agencies have the approach that they have to withhold everything they possibly can, which is basically everything. Mm. 
Ian. While we're talking about issues of transparency, I'll give Patrick a kudos for a story he had within the last week about how the Rodan FC soccer team is getting financially guaranteed in its arena construction by a member of the ownership group. The, the sticking point is how this person is not being identified, and this project is getting public money. So I think all of us on this panel would agree that there should be more rather than less uh, sunlight on this. and there's nothing good that comes from this lack of confident lack of disclosure and the team can say that it illustrates skin in the game that if the project suffers financially the ownership will, will face that that loss but I think it, it would be better to have more disclosure on this you remember and I, Patrick I don't know if you were in the market I can't it all begins to blur I can't remember if it was Cicilline or Tavares when they were mayor of Providence they brought in somebody whose salary was half funded by the Providence, the Rhode Island Foundation. And so there was an issue, too. I mean, public, private, I get that. But if there's any public involved, isn't it better to err on the side of let's get it all out on the table? Absolutely. Right. Raymond, what do you have? My outrage is the, I saw it on Twitter recently, that there's, Elon Musk is thinking about charging new users $1 to tweet and retweet, or post and repost I should say and that's just I mean ever, ever since he bought Twitter it's just it's, well he's got to make up for the 46 billion dollars that's right. going right down the tube right Right, but when, I mean when you look at our jobs I mean a lot of our, we get a lot of engagement from social media when I started out I was interacting with Ian and Patrick and you and Tennessee and all of them when I was just starting on Twitter and just to see the platform and I, I love the platform just to see it go to the shape it's in right now it's just it's just it hurts Patrick finally you <laughs> had a great article about the rip the board um, I would love to really hear what goes on. You see what's in public. Peter Alvedi, the transportation director, has now been appointed the chairman. There's a lot of dynamics here because the Senate president wanted to dissolve it and have it go under DOT. What I found interesting in the news peg this week was that he wanted to come in and have a performance review, kind of a management study, and that got voted down. That was an interesting story. It, it, I mean, it's just a, a food fight and a power play um, in, in, at RIPTA, and I don't know how it's going to shake out. Um, yeah, it certainly looks like uh, uh, Alvini just wants to take the whole thing over, um, and, there, and there's a fight behind the scenes um, and in the State House about whether he should. Um, and but in his defense, if they're if they're looking at a looming thing, he wanted to get an outside look, and the rip to people said, "Well, we can do that internally." Well, sometimes you need a fresh look to come in from the outside, right? Yeah, or or is it or are we just bringing in more consultants uh, at high price to write more reports? And um, yeah, some someone's got to take charge and have a vision for um, for what to do. And the question is, is that? I think the real question is, is that going to be, is that the governor? Is that someone who can actually put the funding and the money behind it? Because right now you've got people who are outside and kind of, and don't actually have that authority to spend the money who are doing the fighting on either side. Makes you wonder if we need an inspector general. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that's a whole nother show. What do you think? If you look at the history of RIPTA, I think the agency has always been poorly funded and we'd like to think it would be relatively easy to have robust public transit in a small state like Rhode Island, but it takes money to do that. But it's also got, look, Scott Avedesian's brought in a lot of people on the higher level. And that's, I get those emails, you probably get those emails. What about an independent person to come in and say, either this is justified we need these people in six-figure positions, or you could trim a few out. I think that's maybe what 
an outside person. Again, I understand the consultant situation, but to take a fresh look at, you know, what are all these positions being funded if you're crying poverty? Yeah, that's totally fair. I mean, it's always worth re-examining the government bureaucracy in Rhode Island and looking if it can be made more, more efficient. All right. Folks, that is all the time. It's a quick 30 minutes with these guys, Ian and Raymond and Patrick. Good to see you. Folks, come back here next week. We don't know what's going to happen on Lively, but we do know that we'll be here to analyze all of it and maybe break some news for you. Come back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great weekend. Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, a Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.